This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm your host, Dan Gunther, and my co-host, Bruce Gibson, is here as well. Bruce, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Feeling good. Been reading Picard. It's so great. Love it. How are you, Dan? Yes, it's so good. And I'm excited because, of course, this is a special episode. I think they're all special episodes, but they're even more special when we get to talk about a new release. So today in the feature, we will be talking about Star Trek Picard, The Last Best Hope, with none other than the author of the book herself, Una McCormick. Really looking forward to that discussion. I'm sorry, it's Dr. Una McCormick. Yes, you are absolutely <laughs> correct. Definitely. She's been busy, man. She's uh, been out, you know, promoting the book, doing signings, interviews, whatever, going crazy. She was in California and I, kn- mm-hmm. I noticed on Twitter she was eating pancakes almost every day for breakfast and she was just oh, loving wow. it. So. <laughs> yeah, and she's been doing, I think, uh, author signings the last couple days. She's Coming from one today, actually, to be with us here. So we're really thankful to her for finding some time in her schedule to speak with us. Really excited about that. But before we get there, we do have a couple of pieces of news to share with you. Uh, The first is something we haven't done for a little while, which is a new book cover reveal. However, according to Simon & Schuster, this is not the final cover but we have uh, a temporary cover for Star Trek Discovery Die Standing by John Jackson Miller. So this one is coming out later this year on July 14th is the official date that this one is coming out. Uh, And this cover looks pretty cool. We've got kind of what's become standard for Discovery, that kind of blue nebula and stars in the background. But in the foreground, we get the logo of the Terran Empire from Star Trek Discovery. This kind of red and blue look to it with some cracks spreading across the front of it. So uh, keeping in mind that this might not be the final cover, what do you think of this look? I love it. I hope I it is too. the final cover. I mean, it's so great. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, it really is like, oh, wow, this is in the mirror universe. This is this looks awesome. Like, I'm I want to read this. Yeah, it's beautiful. And we do also have a back cover blurb for it as well. So this this sounds really interesting. And it goes as such. No one in the history of histories has lost more than Philippa Georgiou, ruler of the Terran Empire. Forced to take refuge in the Federation's universe, she bides her time until Section 31, a rogue spy force within Starfleet, offers her a chance to work as their agent. She has no intention of serving under anyone else, of course. Her only interest is escape. But when a young Trill, Emini Dax, discovers a powerful interstellar menace, Giorgio recognizes it as a superweapon that escaped her grasp in her own universe. Escorted by a team sent by an untrusting Federation to watch over her, the Emperor journeys to a region forbidden to travelers. But will what she finds there end the threat, or give Agent Giorgio the means to create her old empire anew? Wow, this is the first time I've heard this. I hadn't even read this. And as you're reading it, and when you got to the young troll Emery Dax, my eyes just lit up. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? And then the rest of this sounds like really cool. Like, I'm really excited about this. This is going to be really fun. I can tell already this is going to be really out there. Yeah, I'm excited about this one as well. It sounds really interesting. And John Jackson Miller crafts amazing stories great stories and i love that it's tying into a character we know a little bit about uh, i'm wondering if there'll be other kind of cameos from other characters in here we know emini knew leonard mccoy at this time for example so i don't know there's some opportunities for some really cool stuff with canon and continuity here that i'm excited to see where this goes for sure yeah this is gonna be good i uh, yeah i'm oh my gosh i want this now I really am excited. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, I get excited about all these novels, but yeah, this is my first reaction to hearing this. So that's, that's what you usually get when you, when I first see a new book and read the blurb. I, I love seeing this ex excitement. Your, your eyes, like you said, they just lit right up and yeah. ah, that's really cool. No, seriously, because when it comes to books, and I, I mean, I have the same reaction to the books just as much as if it's a new series or a movie. I get so mm -hmm. excited. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, me too, for sure. Uh, well, the next bit of news, I don't know, depending on how you take it, maybe not quite as exciting. I'm not sure. But uh, we recently learned that Viacom CBS is selling their publishing arm, Simon & Schuster. So the publishers of the Star Trek novel line are being sold by Viacom CBS. Uh, so the CEO, Bob Backish, uh, revealed this at an investor conference on Wednesday. And there's a kind of interesting quote here. He says, we'll engage in a process and look at strategic alternatives for Simon and Schuster and referred to the publishing company as not a core asset. So they want to focus more on the video based stuff that they produce. And he says it doesn't have a significant connection for our broader business. So, as far as what this means for the Star Trek book line, it shouldn't affect it. It should continue to go forward. You may remember they recently negotiated a new contract, which is still in effect right now. So we shouldn't see a lot of changes due to this, I hope. And it sounds like there is interest from outside parties in purchasing the company. Backish says uh, they, they're hoping to get a good amount for this. It's not 
something they're just you know getting rid of and then it's going to disappear it looks like it's going to continue under whoever buys it in the future so what are your thoughts on this one I mean, this isn't all that surprising to me. I mean, I wasn't expecting to hear this, but Viacom CBS, since the merger of the two companies into this, have been reevaluating their business model. And there's a lot of video movie type media companies that are doing just this. They're trying to focus more on their core business. So it's not a huge surprise, but I also don't expect this to affect publishing Star Trek novels in any way. I like the fact that the movies and the TV series are back under one company. And I like that the novels were in that same company and now they're not going to be, but Mm -hmm. I really don't expect it to affect anything because like you said, there's been a contract renewal for the Star Trek novels with Simon Schuster. I don't know how long that contract is, but I don't expect it's going to change anything. If years down the road, Simon Schuster are not interested in doing Star Trek novels, then CBS, or I should say Viacom CBS, will find someone else to publish novels. So I'm not concerned really at all with this. Yeah, and and as it stands for most media tie-ins, most of them are not under the control of the primary company that makes the the media that the tie-ins are based on. Star Trek was kind of an outlier with that because... CBS Viacom owned Simon and Schuster. So this will kind of just be making them uh, in the same boat as other media tie-in books are for other properties other than Star Trek. So uh, yeah, not, not, we shouldn't see too much of an effect from this. So, but we will keep you posted when we learn more such as who is buying Simon and Schuster, if that gets revealed and uh, hopefully we find out more soon. We should, we should buy them. For sure. Like, let's all pitch in our money, buy Simon Schuster, and then we control the Star Trek publishing line. There you go. I love it. I love it. Yeah, let's do it. Well, before we get to the feature, we should review some listener feedback from the last episode. So uh, the last episode was Literary Treks 297, A Palm Punch with No Follow Through which was, of course, our interview with Dayton Ward about the Kirk Fu manual. Everybody uh, was Kirk Fu fighting. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to do that music, but with like that boo, 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 but it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Ralph LB says, longtime listener, first time commentator. As always, Dayton Ward was a good guest and the Kirk Fu manual sounds hilarious. I'll have to check it out. I like that you guys also cover the comics and the recent interview with with the Picard Countdown comic writer was quite enlightening as to how these projects are put together. I enjoyed Countdown and also the novel Last Best Hope. These two Picard prequels integrate well together and I'm intrigued as to how you will review the latter. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much for that comment and stay tuned in the next couple of minutes and you will find out how we review the ladder. Oh, yes, because I like climbing ladders. And then uh, Justin Ozer says, I enjoyed year five, number 10 in your discussion on that comic. As always, Dayton Ward was hilarious and the book sounds like so much fun. Thanks. And sure enough, that book is a lot of fun. Excellent. And Kimberly Lawler says, thanks for having Dayton Ward back on. I always enjoy listening to his interviews. I love that this book is written to play it straight. It somehow makes it funnier. The illustrations really are perfect too. No need to have Shatner record an audio version. I think most of us can hear his voice perfectly well on our own in reading this. 
absolutely agree. His voice comes through in this perfectly, and I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. We certainly did, too. Well, what do you say we welcome Dr. Una McCormick into the studio and record an interview for this book? I'm really, really excited to get into this. Yeah, me too. Um, And then maybe I'll ask her something about Hollow Men, her DS9 novel that we covered a few episodes ago. (laughs) I can't wait. Well, today we've got a special episode of Literary Treks. It's always a special time when we get to talk to the authors. And in this case, I think this one's extra special because we have the honor of being joined by Una McCormick to talk about the first Star Trek Picard tie-in novel, The Last Best Hope. And I am really looking forward to this discussion. So, Una, thank you so much for joining us. My absolute pleasure. I'm happy to come anywhere where I'm described as very special. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are special because I want to start things off real quick before we get into the novel. When we had you on before, it was a little over a year ago, and we spoke about wouldn't it be neat if Discovering Season 2 does what the novels do, and that is call number one Una, and you were saying how much you would love that if they did it, and they did. They did. They did. I'm can- <laughs> they canonized me. <laughs> you are the first author who is a, a canon person. <laughs> and such a cool, cool canonization as well, I think. I skipped. Uh, I'm a, I was brought up Catholic, so this, is, this has great uh, signification in my life. I, I sl- skipped the stage of being blessed Una McCormack and gone straight to sainthood. It's wonderful. So, uh, yeah, absolutely <laughs> delighted. Uh, just, just great. Just great. Excellent. Yeah, no, that was... Uh, a real treat for, I think, lovers of the novels to get that. And then, of course, you know, the the authors who created that name for that character in your honor, like that's that's pretty special. That's really cool. It's great. It was great all around. It's, it, it's nice to feel the love. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, I guess moving on to the other new Star Trek series now, Star Trek Picard. And this has been a long-anticipated series ever since it was first announced at STLV a few years ago. This idea of bringing Jean-Luc Picard back. And of course, those of us who regularly read the Star Trek novels were wondering, okay, what does this mean for the book line? What does this mean for tie-in novels having to do with that? And it wasn't too long that we got the announcement that the first tie-in novel would be a prequel novel, The Last Best Hope, written by Una McCormick. So I guess my first question kind of has to do with the process of how this came about. So there's kind of unprecedented coordination between the writer's room and the book line uh, for the Discovery novels and now for this novel. So what was the process of writing this novel and telling this prequel story to the new series? Well, like you say, I was working very closely with the writer's room, in particular with Kirsten Beyer, who I'm sure um, uh, listeners to this podcast will know as uh, the author of many fine uh, Voyager novels. So Kirsten absolutely uh, understands the process of writing uh, a tie-in novel and absolutely understands the process of um, writing a novel Uh, based on a show that's in production. Uh, The big difference uh, for me, although I had done the Tilly book, the Discovery book, uh, the big uh, difference, that was for, we'd had season one by then. So the difference now was that I was writing a book uh, with a show that was still evolving as we were writing. So there there was a strong sense of the underlying tone and direction and kind of timbre of the show. Um, But I was uh, getting scripts uh, and script revisions um, as I was writing. 
Um, and uh, uh, you sort of, I, we sort of had to, it helped that we were writing a prequel in that we knew where the character was when the show started. Um, so we had to sort of, we were trying to sort of fill that line in between um, where Picard was in this book and where we would meet him at the start of the show. So I tried not to worry very much that, um, you know, I was getting, I was getting new versions of the script because that was probably material that we weren't going to be touching in the book. Um, that was all going to be as the show unfolded. And my job was to bring Picard to the the point where the show was opening. Um, so I kind of didn't panic and uh, just said, okay, well, there's stuff I can't control. So let's make the story about stuff that we can control and uh, and stuff that I hope people will enjoy, characters that they might recognise um, from both this show and from Next Gen and Beyond uh, and some original characters, some new characters that we sort of fed in. Um, so yes, it was, it was, uh, very busy and there were lots of, um, uh, changes happening, but I think what, uh, Kirsten and I had worked quite hard to do when we put the outline together was to build a story that would, um, cope quite well with that process. Uh, so, um, I know it was very, very tight, right? I got very immersed. I wrote it over the summer holiday, uh, bless my family. Um, and I just tried not to panic and to remember, that it was completely brilliant that I was doing this book. <laughs> so I, I, I just really try to enjoy it. I set out to enjoy myself. Excellent. And so how much of that story was kind of filled in? Like, were there kind of specific story beats that you had to hit uh, in crafting this story? Or was a lot of that kind of left up to you and Kirsten to work out as the novel was being written? The, the specific beats were to, I, 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 I think anyone who's read the book, are we going, we're going to assume that uh, listeners will have read it. Should we, should we put the kind of spoiler dot, dot, dot lines yes. here? Yes, let's do that. Spoiler, let's dig right in. Spoiler shall follow, yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I think when you're trying to manage this much information as a writer, what you do is, well, let's go for a fairly straightforward structure. We're covering quite a long period of time. It's about five years. Uh, and um, I think our worry was, well, how do we get everything in and um, will, will we be covering everything? And I thought back to my previous novel, which looks like this, which people may have read, which is The Neverending Sacrifice. And I thought, well, the thing to do is to cr- try and um, dramatise specific episodes. Uh, so maybe think of it as episodic. So we knew that we wanted to touch on uh, the co-op Milat and Zani. We knew we wanted to have Elnor. We knew that we wanted to uh, look at the story of Maddox and Jurati. Uh, and then obviously to um, introduce uh, Rafi and the meeting with Picard, that kind of tight relationship. And I think when we meet Rafi in the show, we see a relationship that's soured. But a relationship sours only when there's been uh, uh, depth and love and mutual appreciation. So that was what we needed to trace, the sort of uh, start of that relationship and then the sort of beginnings maybe of it, of it crumbling. So yes, there were, there were many beats that we tried to work in, but structurally the novel is quite a simple structure. It's three acts. Uh, and, and those are the kinds of things that you do for yourself as a writer that um, solve a lot of problems for you. You know, if you've got, if you're, if you're, the scripture getting a changing, then you try to control other things and make the process a little bit simpler. So yes, certain beats that we tried to hit. 
all within the confines of a hundred thousand words. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's simple, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> well, now it's interesting too, because we had Mike Johnson on a couple episodes ago who wrote the countdown comic. And he mentioned several times through the conversation that he worked closely with you on this to make sure that kind of things me- meshed up well with your novel. Yeah. I think we'd, um, we'd, we'd sort of, uh, uh, I, I, I haven't had a chance to read them yet because I've, I've I've just been unlucky whenever I've gone to the comic shop. Like, oh no, they've gone. Um, but it's the story of Laris and Jaban, isn't it? Yeah. So mm-hmm. we sort of we fenced that story off for them, and instead I told a story uh, in in Robin's face in the third act of the book, which uh, we wanted to feel kind of fed into that. That um, we wanted a sense that there was a, a reason that uh, Picard would become so attached and want to save somebody. Um, so in, in that act of the book, as, as readers will know, he's not able to prevent uh, uh, somebody doing a good thing from being killed. So we tried to, I, I tried to craft that so it would give a sort of um, precursor to the Laris and Jaban story. So yeah, we, we were working really hard to sort of stitch this all together. Um, and the, the timing of the release of the book, uh, people have said back to me that, you know, episode three went out, um, the book landed they read the book between that and episode four and went, this is absent. This was just the best time to get it. I had things mm-hmm. explained that I'd seen. And then I was kind of ready to meet Elnor and Zani in that situation. So it's all been very carefully thought through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard a lot of people say that too. Yeah. 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 It, it was just a really good moment for it to arrive. And I think other people have sort of read it after other episodes or I think, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, they've started, but they're going to wait until the, the, the show ends. But it, it's worked at that sweet spot extremely well, I think. Well, one of the things that I really appreciate about this novel uh, and Star Trek in general, of course, is the tackling of social issues. And, you know, that's something that obviously the series has delved deep into as well. And there's so much of this that's resonating with current events and so many things that, you know, I, I'm afraid we'll probably only get to skim the surface on a lot of them. But, you know, there's so many parallels to what's happening in the world today. We've got Brexit happening, and we see the secession threat of the Federation, the rise of nationalism. There's even, I think, a lot of commentary on things like climate change, and of course, refugees. Uh, Star Trek has traditionally been a platform for exploring contemporary issues. What was it like bringing this type of Trek storytelling into the trials of what we're facing here in the 21st century? Oh, uh, well, this seems to me the purpose of science fiction. Uh, and um, and Star Trek has always done this, hasn't it? It's, it's always been this mirror back to the American dream, um, you know, holding this up and going, is this, is this how we are? Uh, is this what we want to be? Is this more how we should be? Um, so certainly anyone who's read my Cardassian novels will know that, I, you know, I've, I've, I've I I do try and novelize um, particularly questions about institutional integrity and how well democracy stands up. Um, Cardassia has been a slightly happier story in that we've sort of, you know, um, if you, anyone has been following those books, we've been rebuilding democracy in those. Whereas I think what we are, uh, where we were in this book was a sort of um, watching institutions crumble. Uh, and um, I feel like we're doing that all the time at the moment. I don't know if people are following the news in Britain, but uh, one of our very most senior civil servants, I mean, probably number two in the civil service, resigned today uh, saying he's going to bring a case of constructive dismissal against our um, Home Secretary, who's our Justice Secretary. 
this is major. This is this is incredible. We can't, you know, no, this has never happened before, and it's a it, we're we're facing a situation where our institutions are uh, uh, shuddering, um, are are uh, having to sustain numerous blows, and and you know we're wondering whether they're going to weather it. Um, so all of that goes into the book. Uh, I I think that I, yeah, I've been reading a lot of reviews of of the show and of the book. Um, and I think some people find this trek a little bit too dark for their tastes and that's fine. You know, we can't please everyone. Um, but I think for me, it feels really important to, to go back to these, um, stories and these, these characters that we know well and, um, hold up that mirror again and say, well, we can be utopians when things are going well. Can we carry on being utopian when things aren't going well? And that's the real test of um, utopia to me. Can it weather it? Uh, can it keep on going? Can we keep those principles alive and hold dystopia at bay? Um, and that, I think, is a little bit of, of what's going in the book. And then all that stuff about climate change and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that's all in there. These are all the pressures that we're feeling. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, uh, that's always what has interested me about science fiction. Uh, and about Star Trek, that's why I love Deep Space Nine. And so this this book was a gift. It kind of um, it, it's everything I want to write about. I think, yeah. And of course, you have a background in sociology, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that comes through very strongly in your world building. And I, I couldn't I couldn't escape the feeling that kind of what you've done for Cardassia in the novels. There's a bit of that being done for Romulus in this novel, which I thought was really cool as well. Yeah, I actually, I, I find Romulus a much, much bleaker place than um, Cardassia. There's, um, uh, there's so much paranoia that there's, uh, I mean, there's paranoia on, on Cardassia, but uh, uh, they, they seem to have more of a, more of a laugh about it. I think <laughs> the, uh, Card- Cardassians strike me as having a little bit more fun in their dystopia. So uh, maybe, I, maybe I just went a bit native on Cardassia Prime. Whereas, um, you know, uh, Romulus um, seemed a very frightening and lonely and isolated place to me. Uh, so, um, uh, so yes, uh, uh, there are similar, dystopias are similar in many ways, I think. Um, uh, they isolate people, they make them fearful. Uh, they, they sort of corrode the ties between people. Um, so um, authoritarian dystopian systems have that similarity. Uh, the trick is to make it feel like a Romulan dystopia rather than, you know, repeat the Cardassian one. I hope I managed to make that work. Yeah, you absolutely mm-hmm. did. And as I was reading this, I kept thinking how you've written so much about the Cardassians and about Cardassia that this is a shift, but then it's very similar in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Different, but but similar. And one of the things you also tackled in here is about the succession from the Federation, how some of these planets are doing that with Olivia Quest, which is a character that you created, who's a junior council member of the planet Estellan. Or Estellan, yeah. Okay, and that's near the neutral zone. So tell us about that storyline and how those worlds feel that they have been beholden to the big four, as you mentioned in the novel. Yeah, well, I mean, that's uh, that was as I as I re- as I recall, that's um, that that was something that uh, the seed of the idea uh, came to me. Um, 
uh, or was given to me. Uh, and then I sort of went, oh, well, well what, what can I think of that's been happening to me recently that's like people seceding from a major union of, you know, and, oh, dear me, this is, a, this is a Brexit story, isn't it? Okay. So um, I, it, it's different from Brexit in that what, what, what's happened with Brexit is that one of the big four has, has kind of pulled out. Um, but um, a lot of what it, of a lot of the debate that's been going on, you know, if you listen with an open mind and try not to polarise, uh, you do get a sense of, you, you know, that um, uh, people in Greece have been really harmed by uh, economic policies directed from um, from from the centre of the EU, from the central bank, and those are voices that we have to listen to. So that was kind of the idea that I ran with that these these smaller planets, perhaps the federation that we see. Uh, we see a lot of Earth propaganda, or we see, you know, everyone's everyone's fine on Earth and, and the Big Four, but out on the uh, periphery, you know, if you're living a bit closer to the Romulans, uh, and this big crisis is hitting, uh, then you're going to feel an impact from that, and um, it, maybe it's difficult to get yourself heard. Uh, maybe people have become complacent. When things are working, they tend to work well. Um, so, so that was that was the sort of things I wanted to explore: uh, how we make these smaller voices heard, and. Um, um, you know, there has been a lot of self-reflection uh, of, of where the Remain campaign in Britain went wrong to stay in the EU, that perhaps we didn't listen to marginalised voices enough um, or dismiss them too easily. Uh, and perhaps people should have been listening a little more closely a little sooner. So that perhaps was some of the stuff that I wanted to to put in um, writing this. But I was writing in a post Brexit world or, you know, it was more or less a done deal. Um, so, yes, the, the, trying to give... Um, uh, a, a hearing to those voices. Although Quest, I find quite a chilly character. She's she's very ambitious and pragmatic, and uh, is able to bend with the wind in quite a quite a um, cunning way. I think. Yeah, that was something that actually really resonated strongly with me uh, living in Western Canada as I am right now, and I I kind of roll my eyes and shake my head at what we have going on here. But after the most recent federal election, there was what was called the Wexit movement, which was a, (laughs) I know, (laughs) like a Western secession from Canada, or more specifically, an Alberta secession from Mm -hmm. Canada, which wouldn't work for a myriad of reasons that I won't go into. But um, our premier and, and our current conservative government of Alberta has really done a good job of kind of capitalizing on that. And even though they absolutely know there would never be any way that would work, they've, you know, set up a commission to look into Western marginalization and all this stuff. Right. Oh, and wow. This really must have chimed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like this Olivia quest and her opportunism, like, well, maybe we can use this. You know, I was, it was just totally resonating yeah. for me there. Oh, good, good. Right. Well, yes, I these things are very similar wherever, I think. There's there's often been talk of a sort of um, Cascadia, hasn't there, kind of going from Northern mm. California up into British Columbia sort of secession. Uh, I think I might, I don't know, I might want a bit more of the Californian economy in that. <laughs> but I, don't, I don't know whether Vancouver wants to be attached to Sacramento, but um, I, I remember hearing about that, but I didn't know it's sort of, I, I didn't know anything about that movement in Alberta. So that's really interesting. And then meanwhile, here in, in the EU, we've had some sort of smaller countries who have played their hand extremely well. Ireland has played a blinder over Brexit. It's just, uh, it's got everything it, it, it has wanted. So uh, despite our sort of conservative press going, oh, no, they're being played, they're being used. I think uh, the Irish uh, diplomatic corps have done a very good job 
done everything they needed. So, uh, you know, small, small countries, small hands can, um, you know, play that hand extremely well. So, uh, but yeah, Quest is an opportunist, uh, I think. And then sometimes making good points. Yeah. Definitely. And and yeah, like I said, that just that felt very realistic given oh dear. <laughs> the, yeah, the crop of politicians at, at many levels <laughs> that we're dealing with in this world. Well, but, keep an yeah. eye on them. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, next thing you know, you, 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 you sort of say, oh, you know, we'll never leave the EU. Who's going to vote? Oh, my. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Seems like we are then. Okay, well, uh, let, me, let me just check out my Irish passport again. <laughs> so, yeah, keep mm-hmm. an eye on it, guys. It's uh, uh, you don't want to be caught on the hop with that one. <laughs> uh, no, that's for sure. Out. That stresses me out. I prefer reading politics in Star Trek because I know it's not really happening. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just a little bit removed. Right. <laughs> well, another character that we're following in this novel and and one that i really liked was uh dr amal safadi Mm. and i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly i think so Uh, yes (laughs) perfect and she's uh, a federation astrophysicist who's studying what's going to be happening with the romulan supernova and the numbers that they're getting out of romulus aren't quite jiving with uh jibing with what she's detecting here and she also tries at various points to share her data with a leading Romulan scientist, Nokim Vritet. Mm-hmm. What was it like writing this section of the book? And I, like, I've got to say with Nokim, a number of the uh, just the, the kind of draconian society he's living under and what he's operating under. A lot of that was so chilling to read. Yeah, that was that was the bleakest part of the book um, to write, to be honest. Particularly, as he he's sort of um, Winston Smithed at the end, isn't he? He sort of learns mm. to love Big Brother and um, uh, doubts his own is 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 sort of forced to um, or made or um, uh, to to deny his own reality, uh, and that's that's really the most chilling part of the book for me. Very de- very depressing to write. Um, I think uh, throughout the book, I, I sort of had a sense of of characters that were paired. Um, so I've got Picard and Raffi all the way through. I've got Maddox and Girati. Uh, I've got Geordi, uh, sort of with his, he's got a sidekick as well. He kind of has some other people that bounces off. And Safadi and Ratet were a, a pair for me. But of course, they never meet uh, and they never really are able to communicate. Um, so I guess they were the place where I tried to show that um, uh, a utopian society has to be open and diverse, uh, and uh, it has to be evidence-based, I think, as well. Um, And that um, even then, uh, all the best will in the world is is not able to enable Safadi to make contact with Ritet. And in fact, one of the saddest bits of the book for me is that she does make this sort of open-handed gesture and writes to him. And of course, it's the worst thing that she can do because it's when that message kind of goes through, it's viewed with suspicion by his, by his masters. And, um, it's possibly the worst thing that she could do, but, um, and then what the situation that Britet is operating under is this very isolated, um, inward looking, uh, society. And as I was saying before, that's how, um, authoritarian societies work. They time make you mistrust people around you or, uh, uh, hate people around you and he's mistrustful he's lonely he's isolated and science doesn't work like that society doesn't flourish like that so they were very much a pair for me and their inability to be able to communicate openly 
is the, the sort of main fault line of the book. I think if, if that had been possible, then perhaps things might have been very different, but it's, it's not, and so they can't be. Um, so, yeah, they were very much paired in my mind, and I, I'm glad you connected them up. She's sort of operating in ideal conditions. She's even got a sympathetic boss. Hooray! We love having a sympathetic boss. Everyone wants a sympathetic <laughs> boss. And then she's able to sort of defend her, uh, her figures uh, against the pressure of politicians who perhaps would like them to be different. Well, you know, you can't. Uh, maths can't be fooled. You know, the universe can't be fooled. Um, so she's able to operate in this open society and he isn't sadly. Um, and that's the great tragedy of the book, I think. Yeah. It's even scary though. Like even in the Federation, how that starts to creep in, like when she's doing that presentation in, in that hearing, when she's giving her information, it's clear that the people questioning her kind of want her facts to not be right and mm. kind of almost seem of the mindset that if we push it hard enough, those facts will be different. And it really felt like the era of, you know, fake news and all those hashtags like that. Yeah. Which, which was definitely chilling. And 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 um and what I did try to because this is this is Star Trek, so I try and assume that everybody has a very good reason. You know, every, everyone's the hero of their own narrative. I didn't I didn't want to write a complete villain. Um, you know, even Quest, I think, is 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 right to feel that, you know, we're pouring all this into um we're we're doing all this for our enemies, but we back on my planet are working with three rubbish ships and, you know, an out of date transporter. Where's our upgrade sort of thing? You know, just because we're on the rim, um, we, we, we'd like some stuff too. Um, so even she has got a sort of, uh, uh, point to make. Uh, and, and at the same time, you know, having your, um, having a major and hostile power collapse on your borders is, is calamitous, uh, even for a very stable power. Um, so, you know, there are worried people who are going, oh, please just let it be different. Please just let it be different. Please just let it be different. But Safadi, because this is a novel, um, is able to robustly defend um, her position. Uh, so, um, so I do try and make those people have good reason for what they're doing, uh, but they are ultimately wrong. Uh, and as you say, I think are, are, are wishing for things to be true that are not and cannot be true uh, and, and push it perhaps too far. Um, so they do have, they have justifiable reasons, I hope. Um, I hope I've made those mm -hmm. clear. Absolutely. Because um, I, I would admit, I mean, reading this book, I never felt like there was a villain. It's like I understood everyone's point. I mean, mm. everyone had a valid reason. Whether I agree with it or not, I understood yeah. it. I mean, it's I think because of the situations they're in. I think the only villain is the is the senator at the at the end, the one who won't who won't release people. Yes. Uh, he's not letting people evacuate. I think I think he's he, he's perhaps twirling his mustache a little, but you know, to, uh, there are people like that. <laughs> so spend ten minutes on Twitter, you'll find them. So um, uh, and um, and again, he's a product of a society that uh, lets people not really have reality checks uh, and. There's no reality check, uh, and he just sees the Federation as his enemy. He sees it all as a as a con. You know, he doesn't believe what he sees or what he hears. So why should he uh, give his enemies the upper hand? Um, but he's the closest, I think, to to being a villain. Um, but otherwise, I think people have good reason in general for for what they try and do. And would you say that the Romulan Star Empire has that same view because they're not necessarily getting this information information out to their people? And they're not being evacuated like they should. Uh, well, I, I sort of imagined a very uh, uh, um, 
fragmented chain of command that, you know, you might not know what the person at the desk opposite is working on. Uh, and you definitely wouldn't ask. You might, you might have a try and sneak a look at their files, but they've probably got password after password on it. So it, it's just really dysfunctional. There's, there's a lack of trust and communication. Uh, and, you know, the, the guy in the next office has said, don't worry about that. That's under control. And so you go, okay, I'll believe that then because that's one less thing I have to worry about. Um, but in fact, the guy is saying that because he's, it's not under control, but he doesn't want the Tal Shiar to know that things are not under control. So it's, it's just completely dysfunctional. All this fear and fragmentation makes it impossible to operate. Um, so that, that was sort of what I had in mind. Um, no, but nobody really knew what was going on. Certainly not the levels we're looking at. So, uh, you know, the odd, the odd major or something. Um, and certainly not, uh, anyone who's a scientist. So that was the kind of, um, that was the kind of social structure I was imagining the kind of chain of command, just dysfunctional. Yeah. I really like that, what that says. And, and you kind of mentioned this earlier that it's an open and free society that would be best prepared to weather something like this to just use a, a contemporary example like if there was a known disaster i can't imagine what but that was going to befall north korea for example i can't imagine the average citizen would be told that or be given mm. good ways to prepare for that well and, and in, north in korea that, has already suffered terrible famines hasn't it so it's, it's exactly yeah. those disaster strike and i i bet you wouldn't um your average North Korean would, wouldn't dare to say, God, thank God we came through that famine. Roar, roar, you know, the uh, word has been said. Uh, you, you probably wouldn't admit that, that the event had happened, even though you're watching people starve around you. Um, no, it would all be about productivity and how great things are. Um, so, um, so yes, that's, that's sort of, yeah. Uh, um, Romulus felt a little uh, richer in natural resources. And of course, Korea is extremely, North Korea is extremely small and cut off. Whereas instead we had to kind of, I had to kind of work with what's a, uh, is a very, very big empire. So um, uh, uh, the book, the boundaries are more fluid. Um, that kind of complicates things in certain ways. But, but yes, a similar sort of model, I think. Yeah. Well, we should talk a little bit now, I think, about uh, Picard's part of the story and specifically his role on the USS Verity, which I, I have to imagine was named after your daughter. Oh, possibly. Yes, could have been. <laughs> yes, of course it was. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We were trying to come up with a name for a ship. I said, well, we could just call it after my daughter, Verity. And everyone went, yes, that's lovely. Let's have that. Because, of course, it's, a, it's about truth and, uh, you know, eternal truth and, and, and truths that are immutable. Uh, and I think that that symbolizes um, a lot of what Picard is trying to do in this book, that, that there are certain, you know, a line must be drawn. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are, there are certain things that we just have to say, no, these aren't acceptable and we can't allow them to happen. And that's, that's his line in this book. Uh, we've, got, we've got half an hour into this without sort of mentioning Picard, which is really interesting. <laughs> I know. And well, yeah, just, he's, isn't he? he's on the cover and stuff. <laughs> and it just dawned to me, your daughter's now canon too. You both are. Certainly are. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely leverage that pri that sort of privilege. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Get it to three generations. So get my uh, get my mum's name in somewhere. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, but that seemed to be a sort of yeah. That that Picard has a uh, he tries to sort of keep this core mission. Uh, very, very central in his mind. There's so much going on. It's so logistically complex and difficult. So he has to keep on 
constantly coming back to the core principle, which is we are here to save lives. Uh, and this mm-hmm. um, sent, gets him a long way, um, but it's also sort of the seed of, of the downfall in the book, I think, this sort of um, single-minded uh, focus powers through a lot of good um, but ultimately, I, I think is his downfall as he, as he starts to miss things that are perhaps he should be catching a sort of um, uh, falling away of will from his um, from his supporters back at home. Uh, yeah, so that that's sort of how I imagined um, Picard's journey in this book. How would you say that Admiral Picard is different from Captain Picard at this point in his in his life? Mm, that one interesting question. Yeah, uh, <laughs> has. I don't want to say he's he's come to believe his own propaganda because uh, that's not fair because you know he's 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 sort of like the yeah he's he's he is sort of the best and and wisest man um, but sometimes th- that isn't enough I think uh, and I he he like everybody else in the book discovers that. Uh, a single man isolated is not able to do everything um, and that it, it takes support and collective will to be able to do something extraordinary. There's a quote that I, I was sort of partway through the book and I, I, I was re-watching selected episodes and there's a quote that I end up using as an epigram, um, which is a Picard quote. It's, it is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That's not a weakness, that is life. And I was sort of writing the book, and I, I don't know which episode I've been watching, um, and, and that sort of came up. And I went, that's the story, isn't it? That, you know, that it, even with the best will in the world and the sort of best and wisest man at the head, um, sometimes things don't work. And that's, uh, that's awful. Um, uh, but it is life. Um, so that, was, that was, seemed a very important um, journey for Picard. Uh, and for that to happen almost at the height of his powers when you you think surely he's he's almost he's almost like a superman isn't he uh for this sort of um reckoning to come reckoning is not fair because he doesn't deserve this uh but for this sort of um moment of sort of uh of shock uh that there are limits to his powers that he is finite um seemed to be a really profound and interesting thing to to narrate and to examine um, and I hope I, I I know it's quite downbeat the end, and, and the book is very downbeat because it you know the book the book documents a failure, um, but but failure is sort of the step before growth I think, uh, and to still be able to grow and change even after a long fulfilling and great life is also a, a positive thing in a way. Uh, so that's sort of how I I feel about that story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should go ahead and touch on the ending since you just brought that up. It f- fits in so well with what you're saying. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's, 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 he's defeated, isn't he? He's sort of, um, he's checkmated and, um, and sidelined. He's, he's been away from earth, which I think is a problem. He's been so focused on this as a mission of this size demands that focus and that sort of single minded intensity, which is his great strength. Um, but I think he thinks to himself at, at one point, has he been away from Earth too long? Or people say to him, you know, you've you've not been paying attention to to what's going on back on Earth, and he's missed those signs. The the focus has been elsewhere, 
and and meanwhile other people have their own agendas other people don't do what you want them to do not in an open society yeah they 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 get on with their own lives and um, they're heroes of their own narrative and he he can't control everything he's not an authoritarian people are are free to act and to do things that that he can't and wouldn't want to control but it does end in this in this grand failure um in a way or, or a grand defeat uh and is a is a a great shock to him i think um mm-hmm. it's a really sad end to the book yeah <laughs> i really like something you said earlier about there being kind of no real villains in the piece other than the one romulan senator for sure and you know i think at the end picard has villainized starfleet and their decisions a little bit mm. without like you said maybe taking into account a lot of the pressures that they were under mm. so i guess you know there's no black and white right or wrong but like we do have for for example uh one of the other hosts on the network mm. is kind of questioning um you know after such after this major tragedy on mars uh, he says, why are we supposed to feel that pulling back is wrong? The Federation clearly had their own cleaning up to do, and the Romulans were clearly starting to interfere and prevent the Federation from cle- completing their mission. And, you know, to me, it seems like they pull back right when the Romulans are starting to ask for desperate help because the the government has kind of abandoned them. Mm. I don't know. It's one of those things that I'm having difficulty with because I, I think there are no right or wrong answers here. Mm. Utopia is hard. Um, Utopia is a, a series of of choices and choices made with imperfect information. Uh, and and you know maybe you know, the route the book takes is that they retrench and that saves the Federation. Uh, maybe not retrenching uh, the the guys who were threatening secession would have blinked. And, you know, it, it wouldn't have happened. Maybe not retrenching, uh, they would have seceded and the Federation would start to crumble. You've got two unstable powers now in the region. Um, it's, it's hard to say, isn't it? And um, mostly in the book, people are, people are trying to make the best decisions uh, with, with the information that they have available, with, with one or two sort of slightly more selfish or... Um, uh, uh, less balanced uh, uh, people, I think, um, but but yeah, it it it's very hard. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in how uh, big organisational projects succeed, um, but that also kind of involves looking at when they fail as well. What goes wrong? Because we are in a finite universe, and entropy kicks in, and things begin to crumble and change and become different. And so long as they don't shift from kind of social democracy to feudalism, <laughs> uh, then okay, I, I'm I'm good with the change. But uh, um, you know, what one, one would hope that certain core things uh, remain. So, um, I, I so that's sort of the sort of thing I was looking trying to think about. I think, yeah. I also wonder if just for you personally, did you have kind of a difficult time with leaving the story at such kind of a melancholy down place? Just speaking for my myself, you know, I always like to have more of an upbeat, but of, of course you had the kind of um, they, they directive. They may make it slightly more upbeat. I was, I was out oh. much more miserable now. 
So it was I think a, I would have liked that. It was a, it was a matter of a few uh, just a, a few tweaks to a sentence here and there. But I was like, no, Lila, come on, I'm, you're dealing with a British person here. You know, let's absolutely leave on the uh, the minor key. So uh, I, I think we're just. Uh, I, I think there's. A, I hope there's a sort of little seed of um, uh, of optimism at the end. Um, but. Um, uh, uh, I, 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 I selfishly, I love writing books and coming to the end of a book is a really exhilarating and exciting um, uh, process for me. So even though the story ends on this sort of dying fall, uh, the author is kind of punching the air and going, I have achieved everything I wished to, uh, <laughs> and now they shall weep and it isn't because of my powers. Sort of thing. Uh, so it, it's hard as the author to kind of disentangle yourself from the just the satisfaction of a of a of a project that you had planned in a certain way coming out more or less as you'd hoped <laughs> so uh so it's quite hard for me to answer that but but it is it is a it is a very melancholy end and um, i like a bit of melancholy though <laughs> yeah it's Perfect. not all put in you know wrapped up in a bow it's you know sometimes yeah. that's how things yeah. work out but now i'm curious to the prequel novels so you know I, i'm hoping that people might come to that end and go well no this isn't the end because mm-hmm. I've got Star Trek Picard to watch, and that's the that's the actual story, isn't it? This is just feeding into that. So I um, half expected when the book ended there'd be something that said to be continued in the series Star Trek Picard. I, yeah. I, I half expected <laughs> to see that in there, but yeah. So now let's <laughs> talk about Picard will return. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm also curious about his crew because you know I, I've really have come to appreciate the character of Rafi in the TV series and also even in the countdown comic and now in your novel. And we start to see her start to have her downward slide begin in this novel. And we also have a Raman liaison officer named uh, Tajuth, I would say. Tajuth. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's on board. And then we have a Bajoran also on board who's experienced with the occupation of Bajor and that's uh, mm-hmm. Koli Jakan. So how, why are these characters so important to Picard and his mission? Um, Rafi is uh, someone, Rafi is exactly uh, what he needs throughout the book, which is a kind of reality check. Uh, and uh, she's, on, she's on top of a lot of decisions. Uh, she's on top of a lot of, um, you know, there's so much information coming at him that she's on top of what he needs to know. And, and he trusts that, you know, what she's not telling him is, uh, uh, he, he doesn't need to worry about that. Yeah, yeah, she she is delegating well. And she's a kind of reality check. I think he's, um, uh, I think he is right to take someone fresh on this project. Uh, and and someone who, uh, from the moment he sees her, he thinks this this is someone who's, who's not going to um, be awed by the legend. Because I think there are, there are lots of people, you know, when he when he arrives for the meeting, there are lots of sort of jumping in front of him, holding out cups of Earl Grey tea and this kind of thing. And you know, he but he knows that this is someone who will um, speak truth to him. And then I think when 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 she starts to uh, uh, make this slip into um, what he think, uh, you know, he 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 sees it as uh, um, she's starting to lose her grip. I think that's uh, you know the 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 real problem. Uh, for their relationship. So, um, so Rafi's very important because she's very grounded. She's on top of detail. She's very pragmatic. She's very fresh. Um, you know, he's doing something different. He's leaving, he's, he's leaving 
what he knows behind and he's got someone that he can trust. And then at the same time, Geordie is continuity for him. He's, there are parts of this mission that he simply cannot be there. It's not physically possible for him to be present at every place that needs overseeing. It's such a huge project. Um, and Geordie, it, it, it's like having himself there. He knows this man so well. He knows how well he'll react. Um, that he, he just knows he can, he can send him to Mars and, they'll, they'll, and, and send him to deal with this and they'll just get on with it. He knows how this will operate. So he's able to draw on two different strengths there, really good knowledge of somebody and somebody who is fresh and new and on top of their game. And then um, uh, Coley Jokan, I, I, I put in because I thought, um, well, what, what, would be the, what would be the source of uh, um, someone who would understand what it would be like to be a refugee? Uh, what it would be like to be dispossessed or displaced or to experience these things. And uh, uh, Bajoran is a very natural person to go to for this. So she seemed uh, important in the book to have as the voice of the dispossessed, the kind of people who are losing their homes. And that's important to Picard. That's That's the kind of person he's trying to keep in mind, not the politicians or the scientists or the military but the person on the ground, the very ordinary person who is frightened and losing their home and is scared for their children and their elderly and themselves. And he wants a voice that is, is kind of um, uh, telling him how that feels and what matters to these people. So that's, that's uh, uh, how she functions, I think. And he is, he, I think she's sort of the first to fall away, isn't she? She can't quite mm. um, uh, bring together some of the decisions that are being made with um, with what she feels is uh, important about this mission. Um, so, so that that was how I sort of envisaged that core team um, team working. I think, yeah. Well, another part of the team, of course, is as as you mentioned, Jordi LaForge on Utopia Planitia, and I'm I'm curious about this aspect of the story. We haven't really talked a lot about it yet. So we've got uh, Bruce Maddox working at the Daystorm Institute, um, not on his dream project anymore, but instead on building what he considers to be toys for Jordi LaForge's project, these mm. synths who are going to do some of the delicate work that's required for shipbuilding. Um, I was curious how you saw that dynamic working and uh, maybe especially the uh the backstory we get of Bruce and Agnes. Mm. So for example, I hadn't realized starting watching the show that it was, you know, 14 years ago, basically that Bruce kind of disappeared and and left and all of this happened here. I thought this was shed some really interesting light on what's going on in the show. Right. Good. Okay. Well, I shall, um, obviously this is, this is stuff that is a lot of this is still stuff that you are, going to get paid off so uh, <laughs> so uh, i should also put in here that we're when we're recording we've seen up to episode six, six. the impossible yeah. box yeah when this comes out i think a few more episodes will have aired by then yes so, yes uh, so, forgive uh, us our ignorance <laughs> for anything that happens in the next few episodes yeah yeah and i'm and i'm and i'm obviously sort of going oh, oh, hang on let me sort out in my mind what i can what i can say um so um I, I found Maddox and Girati just really, really interesting to write. I think they, um, uh, it, it, we get that relationship through his eyes, 
and he's he's fairly awful to her actually he's you know she's she's absolutely um blown away by the attention of this 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 brilliant man um and i think he he does he does take her for granted or that's sort of how i read it um uh and she's you know she's she's absolutely very much in love with him um but he's he's in love with his beautiful idea um it seemed to me um so i i sort of wanted to to play that relationship out uh and and see where it would go and ultimately it's the it it's the beautiful idea that he that he chases um so in in many ways he sort of echoes uh of retet uh, and their relationship becomes quite isolated doesn't it it's that sort of the two of them and he you know they they don't really go out together or are seen together so there's no there's a the, they seemed in quite a bubble to me there's nobody sort of giving them that reality check uh and that's when you turn inwards you don't you don't get people going is that a good idea or are you quite sure about that so he's almost a sort of um echo of uh vretet in some ways uh and um you know is not um is not getting those checks in the way that safadi is uh and jurati is is very much in love um i think so that's that's sort of how i i wanted that relationship to to play yeah and of course one of the big mysteries in the book is what went wrong with the synths on mars and you know that's not answered in the book it hasn't been answered in the series yet but i feel like that answer is coming it's a big mystery isn't it yeah <laughs> <laughs> you answered that very deftly. <laughs> when I was uh, when this when this book had been announced, uh, I sort of had this joke. Uh, people would ask me, "Oh, is it?" And I I sort of adopted this answer, which was, "I can confirm that I am writing a novel based on the." <laughs> that would that would be my sort of stock answer. It got to be a bit of a joke, so I can confirm that I have written a novel based on. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's going to be what four more weeks. Yep. Fascinating. <laughs> well, I'd also be curious to know. Uh, so, Brandon Shane Matala, who's one of our hosts on uh, here on Trek FM, was asking us about the uh, synths and holograms. That it was a major endeavor to create the synths. So, why not use the army of holograms that are available to use instead? Good question. Yeah. Okay. I figured that's <laughs> how you're going to answer it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. Yeah, let's see how things unfold. <laughs> Perfect. Ooh, fascinating to coin a phrase. <laughs> well, that also has to be kind of a struggle for you too, because you have to kind of tiptoe around things. Like you're used to writing novels and you can invest everything you want into it. And this one, you just have to kind of pick and choose and not go into certain directions. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, So it, it is a big difference writing a show that's in production and a show that's that's not been on air. I mean, I had a free hand on Cardassia Prime. You know, I could oh, you know, let's let's just have a flock of eagles land. I, know, I might not go away with that, but um, uh, you know, I, I oh, let's just take Pulaski there and get her into horse racing. Yeah, okay, let's go with that. That sounds fun. Um, so you know, a very free hand with with shows that are not on air. Um, but this was a this was a different sort of fun uh, in that you, you felt you were. Uh, close to something that was evolving and that was going to be big and um that was a really interesting story so it was yeah it it, it was it was very different but it, i i hugely enjoyed working on this book i'm working very closely with um kirsten and uh, just just massive fun so hard in different ways 
um, really rewarding um, because of that. Yeah. Well, I know I really enjoyed it. I think Dan did too. Good. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. No, this was, I think, I, I, I hesitate to say that it's required reading for Picard because, you know, you, you don't want to necessarily block someone's enjoyment of a show by saying you have to read this supplemental material as well. But the amount that it adds to the enjoyment of the show makes it immensely worth the effort of reading the novel. And uh, yeah, it, it a lot of times tie-in stuff feels superfluous to the final product, but this one feels tied to it in a way that you know, I've not really seen in Star Trek before, which was really, really fun to be able to read that. Good. I'm really glad about that. So, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it was, it's just been a lovely, a lovely project to work on and, um, it's a lovely book. I, I've, I've, I've just had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I can, it shows the joy that you had writing these characters as well. I think that shows through, mm. uh, you know, and, and, we don't want to throw around the C word, you know, books are not canon, but <laughs> this is probably as close as Star Trek novels have come, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I, I, uh, that, that question sort of comes up a lot and, and, and I, I, I've got to be honest, I, I don't think about canon or whether my book is canon or not. I just, I just want to write a, a really good book and a book mm-hmm. that, that people get a great deal from when they read it. So um, uh, I, that's if, if I tried to go down kind of questions of canon, I'd, I'd sort of drive myself crackers. So I just keep focused <laughs> on it. Am I, am I pleased with this book? Is it doing what I want? Are people enjoying it or, or finding finding it a good experience, a, a fulfilling experience? And that's just all I try and think about um, and not uh, canon, except when I'm canon and then obviously I'm delighted. <laughs> Of course you are. Of course. No, I think that's the right attitude for sure. And speaking of driving crackers, this didn't drive me as much crackers as Hollow Men did, the novel we covered last (laughs) month. And you had me reeling on that one. So I appreciate you tweeting us and your thoughts on that one. Hollow Men, a a book not entirely in the control of its author, (laughs) but she she had a lot of fun. (laughs) What does that mean? I think it means something. It hangs together somewhere. I sort of feel that Hollow Men hangs together. I'm not quite sure how it does, uh, so, uh, <laughs> but I feel it does. I feel that I feel there is integrity in that kind of, you know. I, I feel that book does make sense. Um, maybe one day somebody will tell me how. <laughs> but I did have an awful lot of fun with it. <laughs> to me, it makes as much sense as anything Garrick tells us. That's a very exactly. good answer. Yeah, yeah. Chronicles <laughs> of Garrick. I think that's a very, uh, a very good answer. <laughs> Perfect. Well, is there anything that, uh, any final thoughts you wanted to share with us about, uh, the last best hope that we didn't get a chance to cover? Well, I just, I, I hope people have enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I really appreciate that you guys read it and, and sort of want to discuss it in depth. So, um, thank you very much for sort of having me on and asking me questions about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely our pleasure. This is always so much fun. Thank you. Uh, so, can I ask, is there anything on the horizon that you're working on Star Trek or otherwise? Uh, I'm, I'm working on lots of things, uh, uh, none, none of which I can tell you about. <laughs> Fair enough. I think, I think <laughs> lots of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so some of which is, uh, is, is I, I, I quit my job earlier in the year, so I'm, I'm sort of going to 
uh, try my hand at a lot more of my own uh, projects now. So uh, uh, that stuff's all fairly fresh and new. So uh, so who knows? We'll, we'll see. Yeah. I'm going to assume something original. I'm going to assume something Star Trek. And I'm going to assume something Doctor Who and maybe something in between. That's that's what my assumptions are. My oh, assumptions. those are those are interesting assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm that I have written a book based on the. <laughs> <laughs> well, if people want to follow you and find out what you are working on when you're able to tell it, where can they do that? Um, they can definitely find me on Twitter, uh, which is at Una McCormack. Uh, and, and usually I'm just being grumpy about things. Um, and my website uh, has just had a little refresh, so uh, they can find they can look at stuff there as well. That's um, unamacormack.co.uk, uh, and those really are the. Um, don't do anything fancy like Instagram or um, TikTok, whatever it is. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 very much the sort of uh, uh, website uh, and uh, Twitter grumps. So uh, that's where they can find me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really great discussion. And all those listeners out there, please go buy this book if you haven't already. It will add so much more to your appreciation of Picard. And uh, yeah, it's just a great read as well. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Well, oh gosh, what can I say? I mean, I love having Una McCormick on. I love her books. And this was certainly up there not a disappointment at all it really adds to the star trek picard series it's really worth reading because it really gives you some background detail and shows what admiral picard was dealing with at the time of these events and i'm looking forward to other stuff you know one thing she didn't mention is the autobiography of Catherine janeway that's coming out later this year and she will come on the show to talk about that so we do have more works from una coming out Mm-hmm. Really looking forward to that one as well. Those autobiographies have all been great. Uh, all of the ones we've talked about so far have been written by David Goodman. So I'm really interested to see Una McCormick style brought to Captain Catherine Janeway. That'll be very cool. Yes, I can't wait. Well, it's been fun talking about autobiographies and backstories for Star Trek Picard today, but it's not the only thing that we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. I think think the difference is that Flashback is intentionally trying to... to carve Voyager a little place within the fabric of the undiscovered country, say, and it's trying to place Tuvok. Well, he's trying. It's trying almost to <laughs> to retcon, isn't it? Because Tim Russ was in that film as one of the Excelsior crew, so it's it's trying to do a retcon. And the same. No, no, he was in. He was in Generations. He wasn't even in that film. That's the. Oh, wasn't he? <laughs> he was like, and it's and I suppose it's a Brandon Braga episode as well. Brandon Braga wrote Generations. Brandon Braga, I suppose, must have realised some. I mean, maybe unconsciously realised that Tim Russ was in Generations as a different character. He was, so wasn't it's, he? It's almost like a weird. Sort of, um, I've got that wrong. You're I don't right. Know whether on on some no, but I, I wonder whether unconsciously on some level that's the connection you're supposed to be sort of slipping into. And of course, that he was serving on an Excelsior class ship. Earl Grey. I want to see that spaceship that's got giant space-time knitting needles, yeah. <laughs> and they just and they just like do that, like as they warp through space, fixing it behind themselves. That'd be, That'd be awesome. 
Literary treks. The one that I left out that I, that in hindsight, I regret it is the one where he's, uh, is it wink of an eye where he's fighting the guy in the quarters and he actually throws a pillow at the other guy and it hits him in the face <laughs> and, and stops him dead in his tracks for two seconds, long enough for Kirk to get the upper hand on him. And I just, I'm like, I don't even know how to describe this. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what to give. I couldn't come up with a name for it. That was probably the biggest thing is I couldn't come up with a catchy name for it. Pillow talk or something. Maybe in high Stopped him dead in his tracks because he's like, did, did you just throw did a pillow? Did you just throw a pillow? <laughs> yeah. The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. I think I've exhausted the planet. <laughs> well, then let me end on a funny note. The first thing I thought when I saw that Senator beheaded was, well, I guess we don't need to worry about Quentin Tarantino doing a Star Trek movie anymore. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually quite uh, surprised mm-hmm. by that. But <laughs> And his blood was that, very that bright green. Very it bright. It was very bright green. But, is, yeah. 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 Bravo. Bring, Bring Quentin numbers. Tarantino back. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. An Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV. Or engage on the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, Spotify, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS... (laughs) Or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. I'm not even going to try and do an accident. Accident. I'm not even going to try and do an accent here, but visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Those are available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows plus great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click join group.
We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks. Now, Bruce, when you're not reading The Three Musketeers to a young ward of the Coat Milat, where can we find you? Well, lad, you can find me. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I can't do a Captain Picard. That's the best I'm going to get. I'm going to stop right now. You can find me on Twitter at Admirals underscore Rex. You can find me on uh, Live from the Edge with Brandy Chicola when a new episode of Discovery comes out. And you can find me on the Star Wars Report. And you can find me on our new show, Positively Trek, which I don't know if it will be out by the time this episode comes out or not. But hey, look for it. Follow us on Twitter at Positively Trek. And Dan... When you're not figuring out what really is going on in the universe, but somehow your information is not getting to the correct professor on Romulus, where can people find you? Well, unfortunately, this professor doesn't seem to follow me on Twitter, which would make things a lot easier, but I think it's blocked on Romulus or something. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions, where I make videos about Star Trek, mostly Picard right now, but also other stuff. And of course, we do a live stream on Friday nights after new episodes of Picard. As of recording this, there's only a few episodes left, and I'm really sad, but you can definitely catch up with us there. And you can find me on facebook.com slash Productions and www.treklet.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time... Live long. Live long. Oops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I messed up. <laughs> oh, that was me. <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time... Live long. And read on, number one. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.